fortnightly podcast about some great stealth slash stealthy video games and also some rubbish ones on every episode we go in depth and all spoilery on one specific game and we discuss whether said game stealth and its boom boom are up to snuff my name is Colin Ahern, and joining me on this episode is a man who will bear witness to my cult. It's Adam Carroll. Good evening. And alongside him is my little piggy. It's Josh Weiss. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. I'm glad that you have played the game that we're going to be talking about today, and we'll hopefully get that reference. Before we talk about the game we're going to be talking about, we need to get into the right headspace, which means we need to talk about what was happening in and around the date that this game came out. So tonight we're going to party like it's September 4th, 2013. Yes, before we talk about games here on Stealth Boom Boom, we talk about what was happening in and around, uh, well, today, September 4th, 2013, on this very world, a day prior. On the 3rd of September, Microsoft would open their wallets and purchase the one-time giant of mobile phones, Nokia. Oh, yeah. They sold it three years later. A week later, on the 10th of September, Miley Cyrus set the record for the most views of a music video in 24 hours. Wrecking Ball? Spot on. In one day, her video for Wrecking Ball racked up 19.3 million views in a single day. And you know what? Obviously, a big figure, but by today's standards, it kind of seems small. Yeah. Staying on music, and I swear, I'm not even going to joke, I'm not doing a bit. No, it's not, is it? I was going to make that joke. Blurred Lines <laughs> by Robin Thicke <laughs> featuring oh T.I. and Pharrell was top of the charts in America. It was the song's 12th week at number one. Sweet divine. 12 weeks. And I think, I think this was its last week at number one. It would want to be. So that is the Blurred Lines chat done. Jesus. The song that has now become synonymous with Stealth Boom Boom, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, uh, against our will. In the UK, Blurred Lines was not number one. In fact, it was down as far as number 10. Number one was Ellie Goulding with Burn. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the song. I remember Ellie Goulding's name and existence. I've not <laughs> I've not seen Ellie Goulding for a while. I don't know, but I don't know Burn. In movies, American cinema goers were flocking to the picture house one by one to watch the Butler. Oh. The historical dramatic film. Yeah, with John Cusack and also loads and loads of actors in it. Forrest Whitaker, Oprah Winfrey, Mariah Carey. Yeah. Jesus, Jane Fonda, Lenny Kravitz. Wow. Alan Rickman, <laughs> Lee Schreiber, Robin Williams. Yeah, I remember the cast just being absolutely bonkers. Didn't see the movie, though. In the UK, wildly different, number one. So different. I'm wondering if I wrote this down wrong, because the number one film in the UK was One Direction, This Is Us. (gasps) Yeah. 
Yeah. 63% Rotten Tomatoes. Is mm-hmm. it? That's all right. That's actually all right. I mean, I, I was going to ask how true do you think that title is, but if 63% are Rotten Tomatoes, perhaps it is. Maybe it is an honest reflection of, let, let's see how far I can get. Harry, Niall, Zane, Louis. Oh, well done. <gasps> Bloody hell. And Greg. <laughs> This guy's last name is, is, is like a video game character in a way. Solid Snake. No, it is Liam Payne. Brother of Max, yes. Oh, that is good. That is good. So that's what was happening uh, around early September in 2013. So now it's time for us to really dive deep on the game that we're talking about today in a segment that we like to call Back of the Box. So yes, the game we're talking about today is called Outlast. And for those of you who do not know what Outlast is, let me try and sum it up for you in a sentence and a half or so. Outlast is a first-person horror game where you hide from scary monsters in lockers, under tables, under beds, all while documenting your adventure via a very high-tech camcorder. <laughs> I can't remember that many camcorders that had night vision God, no. in 2013. I don't think, anyway. What did this come out on and when did it come out? Well, as I previously said, I suppose, it's original release date, the 4th of September 2013, worldwide on PC. Took a couple of months to come to PS4. It was uh, February 4th, uh, 2014 in America and it the day following in Europe. Then in the summer, in June of that year, it came to Xbox One. A year later, in March 2015, it came to Mac and Linux. And then in February 2018, four and a half years or so after its original release date, it came to Switch. Now, we typically have a look at the back of the physical box. Now, Outlast is a funny one Mm -hmm. because Outlast itself doesn't have a physical box. It didn't come out on retail. But there was something called Outlast Trinity, which came out on a physical box. And that was Outlast, Outlast Whistleblower, which is DLC for the original Outlast, and Outlast 2. So this is kind of the best thing we have, really. And what we have in front of us is the back of the UK PS4 box, I think it is. At the top of the back of the box, it says the ultimate journey into madness. And then you get a little blurb on Whistleblower and a little blurb on Outlast 2. But just for Outlast, it says hell is an experiment you can't survive in the original Outlast. Investigate Mount Massive Asylum and try to stay alive long enough to discover its terrible secrets. It's feckin' terrible (laughs) secrets, lads. And in fact, we're going to get into some of those terrible secrets right now because this is... The part of our segment here, Back of the Box, where I usually give you a recap of the story. So, big spoilers, obviously. A journalist called Miles Upshur, which is such a silly name, heads for a psychiatric (laughs) hospital in Colorado, USA, called Mount Massive Asylum. Upshur receives an anonymous tip that there is some shady business going on there under the watchful eye of the owners of said asylum, Markov Corporation. When Upshur makes his way into the building, he is greeted by oh, ripped apart dead bodies of people who used to work there, as well as some of the patients who are just roaming free. The patients are referred to as variants by Markov because of their appearances. They've been mutilated, basically experiments gone wrong type deal. So if we use the word variants later, that's what we mean. Around this time, Upshur meets Chris Walker. 
who is an absolute unit <laughs> of a patient at Mount Massive. Walker is ex-police, ex-military, served in the US Army in Afghanistan. For Upshur, Walker's optional backstory is pretty irrelevant. Uh, Walker just wants to kill Upshur whenever Walker sees him. The first time they meet, Walker doesn't kill Upshur, but he does knock the journal out. And when... The journal wakes up. He is greeted by someone calling themselves Father Martin. Now, Martin is a sort of friend, ally-ish to Upshur. He guides the journalist throughout the game, but in a way that some would deem a little OTT. Martin basically smears arrows on the walls, directing Upshur throughout the facility, but he smears them on the wall with blood. Uh, Anyway, at this point, Martin says that Upshur was sent by God and that Upshur must stay in the asylum to to witness what Martin has planned with a little cult that he has. Cool, cool. Upshur tries to escape anyway, avoiding the unit called Chris Walker, and eventually Martin catches up to an escaping Upshur and uh, pulls him back into the asylum. This is also where Martin introduces a supernatural entity called the Wall Rider. So the Wall Rider is your big bad. It's this, I don't know, like a, a flying ghost thing mm. that looks a bit Terminator-y, yeah, but yeah. also a ghost. Like, we're, we're going to talk about it later. It's not a ghost. It's no, it's a little robot. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it later. Forwarding on a bit, uh, Upshur continues his escape attempt, only to be captured by someone posing as a doctor. Richard Traeger is this doctor. Now he isn't the nicest fella. Uh, you're probably seeing a pattern here. Um, he cuts off two of Upshur's fingers with these massive shears. Eventually, obviously, Upshur escapes Traeger with the good doctor ultimately being crushed by a lift that was moving between floors. Like most things in Outlast, it's pretty gruesome and bloody and gory and so on and so forth. Upshur makes his way outside, eventually, before being chased back in by the Terminator ghost I mentioned earlier, the Wall Rider. It's all good, though. Upshur eventually makes it to the asylum's church, where Father Martin is being burnt alive on a crucifix. Uh, I know, there's a lot happening here. Mm. Um, So because Martin got his wish of having Upshur be a witness to what Martin wanted, the priest, I mean, yeah, you know, he he dies, but he leaves Upshur a key to a lift that will bring him outside. It laid him in his escape. Wrong! Father Martin didn't do that. He was being a bit of a bastard, actually, uh, because the lift that Upshur thought would take him outside actually takes him to an underground lab. Oh, dear. Fast forwarding again a little bit. Ghost Terminator pops up again. He kills the big fella, Chris Walker, by trying to drag his body through a closed grate, which is very silly and very messy. It's also around this time that Miles Upshur meets Dr. Rudolph Wernicke. Wernicke. Mm. That's a name that pops up a bit throughout the game. Let me give you a bit of a breakdown. He achieved some notoriety in his younger years for a paper he wrote with real, genuine computer and maths legend, Alan Turing. (laughs) Then Wernicke, tugging at collar a bit. Uh, Wernicke joined the Nazis. He devised this thing while working with the Nazis called the Morphogenic Engine. Now, this would allow people who are, and I think I'm getting this right, clinically insane to control a ghost Terminator via a sort of lucid dreaming state. It's kind of, I don't know, a little bit Evil Dead, a little bit Vanilla Sky. 
somewhere in the middle. What a mix. But I think that's about right, yeah. So moving on, Veronica <laughs> immigrated to the US after World War II and eventually ended up working for the Murkoff Corporation who got him to pick up the Project Wall Rider initiative. Uh, what I just mentioned about controlling the ghost thing. Back again to present day then, Vernike asks Upshur to kill a patient called Billy Hope, who is controlling the wall rider. Then everything will be hunky-dory. So, long story short, or a little bit shorter, Upshur does kill Hope, and by extension the wall rider. But after a bit of rough and tumble with the wall rider, Upshur limps towards the exit, and he is flipping gun down by some armed lads who are being led by Vernike. It's not very nice, but it is all right for Upshur because between the jigs and the reels, the wall rider has now possessed Upshur. So the screen fades to black and you hear loads of screaming and spluttering and blood and all that good stuff. The end. And that is the story <laughs> of Outlast. Not, importantly, the story of Outlast Whistleblower which is the DLC of Outlast. The developer and publisher of this one then is Red Barrels. They were founded in 2011 in Montreal, Quebec, Canada by three men, David Chateauneuf, Hugo Delaire and Philippe Maureen. Now, these three weren't young lads looking to get their start in the industry at the time. These were three industry vets by 2011, all working at some pretty big companies on some pretty notable games. You had the first Uncharted, you had both Prince of Persia's Sands of Time and The Two Thrones, you had Army of Two, and two games we've already spoken about on this very podcast. Some combination of these three men worked on the first Assassin's Creed and the first Splinter Cell. Stealth boom boom pedigree on these three boys. Prior to starting up Red Barrels, all three were working on a game at EA Montreal that was based on an idea that Hugo Delaire had. A year into development and EA pulled the plug on it though, just cancelled the whole thing. So the three lads weren't keen on being placed on any of the other teams that had ongoing projects at EA. So they decided to just hand in their notices and just head out on their own. And as always, I'll get the help of you two lovely gentlemen to read out the quotes I have dug up. So in a 2013 interview with GamesIndustry.biz, the article titled Don't Think of Going Indie as Romantic, co-founder Philippe Maureen said, quote, I remember telling my wife I'll quit my job and within three or four months we'll know if it works out or not. And it took a year and a half. We'll rewind a little bit back to when they uh, quit their jobs. They put together a trailer for their new game and began trying to get a publisher on board, but... Nobody was biting on what they were showing. Now, what they were shopping around was Outlast. So I'm guessing some people probably kicking themselves missed out on something like Outlast. But in a 2018 interview with GI.biz, the article titled From Zero to 15 Million, The Story of Outlast, Maureen said that a horror game was something that the Red Barrels co-founder had wanted to do back when all of them worked at Ubisoft Montreal. Maureen said, quote, David and I tried to convince Ubisoft Montreal to let us work on a horror concept in around 2009. There was no interest, and the reason mainly was that although there was a minimum amount of money we think we can make it for, we cannot reach a big enough audience. I'm jumping around a, a little bit here, but the idea for Outlast was, as I'm sure you'd probably guess, partly inspired by the developer we discussed 
during our Penumbra episode. Yes, the people behind the Amnesia series as well, Frictional Games. Red Barrels were thinking that they could take that format and add something interesting to the mix with their experience working on stealth games such as Splinter Cell. Another inspiration for Outlast, as Philippe Maureen told MTV, I'm not sure if we've mentioned MTV on here before, uh, but for an article titled Red Barrels designer Philippe Maureen on crafting first-person horror in Outlast in October 2012, the inspiration for Outlast was Aphex Twin. (laughs) Hugo Delaire introduced the other two to a short film slash music video directed by Chris Cunningham called Rubber Johnny. Now, if you haven't seen it, it basically shows an odd-looking creature called Johnny, <laughs> an odd-looking creature in an Aphex twin thing. <laughs> Whoa! What a surprise! But yes, Johnny is shot on a camcorder with that white-green night vision glow. I would recommend to have a look if you're unfamiliar and you'll definitely see how outlasty. It is. Mm. Like, I'll even stick a link in for the both of you. Click on that. It's immediately disturbing. Uh. It is Outlast. <laughs> so something else that was important to the development of Outlast was something called the CMF. So Red Barrels learned of this relatively new thing called the CMF, or Canada Media Fund. Uh, this fund was set up specifically to help Canadian companies that were producing software, applications, just some sort form of digital content So they applied for funding and they were rejected. As Philippe Maureen said, quote, When we got the answer on the first submission from the CMF, that was probably our lowest point. When they gave us the answer, it was simply, nope, you don't get it. But it wasn't all doom and gloom. In fact, the rejection wasn't down to the quality of Outlast or anything like that. It was money. So in order to get $1 million from the CMF, Red Barrels needed to raise three hundred. Thousand. I think it was just, you know, you need to have your own capital to show us that you're serious about it and then we'll give you this much. So they did raise that and they got the grant. So the budget of Outlast was 1.36 million Canadian dollars. And the 10 person team with a few contractors then made this horror game that its three co-founders had wanted to make for years. And in fact, when you boot up Outlast, that CMF logo, that's the first thing you see. Marin told GI.biz about just how important Outlast was to Red Barrels when they were launching it, though. Uh, he said, quote, We were all in, for sure. We basically had to launch a game before we ran out of money. There were options to find more money, but at that point we felt that we worked so hard to get where we were. It would have been a shame to give away shares in the company just to get a few more months of production. Ultimately, it worked. Yeah. They launched the game on PC and it was a hit. And then they did it again on consoles. And there were risks there as well. The risk was that they decided to launch it as a monthly PS Plus game. So Morin said it was difficult to take just a flat fee rather than revenue from sales Apparently, I believe amongst the three co-founders, they took a vote and PlayStation Plus just narrowly won. So Mm. Morin told GI.biz, quote, It was a gamble. We'll never know what the first month sales would have been without PS Plus, but I personally think it was the right move. We didn't have a marketing budget, so it was our way to do marketing without having to spend money. That is the story of Red Barrels up until the launch of Outlast. 
So sales then. As of October 2016, which I know is a bit ago, but it's the most recent figure I have, the original Outlast had sold 4 million uh, copies across all platforms. Blimey. That is a success. Two years later, as of 2018, Outlast and Outlast 2 had sold a collective 15 million. (laughs) Now, I don't know what the separation is there. They never, like, that's the kind of the best I have. But you would guess that it's, you know, it's taken up a bit of that 15 million. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they did well. They did all right. And the critical reception of this one then on PC and Xbox One, it has a Metacritic score of 80, while on PS4, it has a Metacritic score of 78. And that is your Outlast back of the box. So, we are going to take a quick little break and then we will be back to discuss some of the marketing and press coverage around the game. But during this break, you, dear listener, can take a listen to the audio from the Outlast launch trailer. And then we will be back on the other side of it to talk about it. So take a listen to this. Then let us chat about some of the press coverage for Outlast. But before that, let us chat some of the pre-launch marketing. So how were they trying to position this game before it actually came out? And as I made reference to, and as the listener just listened to the audio from the Outlast launch trailer, which posted on the 4th of September, 2013. I mean, it's not terribly flashy. It's under a minute. It's just some shots of the game. And if anything, I think it doesn't actually make the, um, ultimately, the main gimmick of the game, it doesn't make the night vision camera kind of stand out all that much. Yeah, it's just sort of like one of many options. And also, from that trailer, I think you'd, you'd get way more of, a, of an idea of the, of the play. You'd, you'd sort of think, oh, well, this is, half of this game is, is like platforming and parkour. <laughs> mm. Those bits are, you know, they are in the game, but not, not quite so much. Prior to this, they did publish a, a teaser in mid-October 2012, and they, that was used to announce the game. And then I think the thing that like really hit big was they posted a four minute trailer on Halloween 2012. And that really kind of pushed the game in front of a lot of eyeballs. But one thing I I did want to highlight was the Xbox One trailer, or that's at least how I found it. I think it was the PlayStation trailer as well. And I just found it funny. It reminded me a bit of our Among Us episode, actually, yes. in how we could see the difference in trailers. Like, you're not talking a terribly long time. You're talking, I mean, a couple of months, really, mm. just under a year between the kind of like the Xbox One trailer and the just like kind of launch PC trailer. Mm. But the Xbox One trailer is just so much, like so flashier. Mm. It's just one continuous... Uh, shot going through Mount Massive 
with there's voiceover from Traeger. Like it's so cinematic and so sleek. Mm. Mm. They're like, actually, we're brilliant, and we need a trailer to reflect that. You know, come check, come check out our high, high productions. But you know what? I, I kind of prefer the earlier trailer. I was going to say the same thing, Josh. A little bit rough cut, a little bit lo-fi, and you know, bit, bit, bit of sort of gameplay. This, this is something to it, really. With the second one, it's more. I don't know. I don't want to say like arty farty, but you know. With, with the voiceover and the, and the camera, it's like you don't really get that much of an idea. It's more of a sort of like themes trailer. One video I did want to highlight, that I, there was even a quote in the developer section from Philippe Maureen about the PlayStation Plus and how like we didn't have much of a marketing budget. So there isn't an awful lot of marketing to talk about, but there is one video on the, the YouTube channel of Samuel Laflamme, who is the composer of Outlast and the video is just titled Outlast Composing the Scores posted on the 30th of October 2013 and I wanted to play a clip from this and in this clip you're going to hear the composer Samuel Leflamme I suppose talking about how someone used a I don't think I I think he specifies it wasn't him. I, we'll, we'll hear in, in the clip. Uh, but someone used a violin bow on a cymbal and that noise basically led to the score of Outlast. So take a listen to this. During a percussion session, we found this amazing sound. Um, it was created by a cymbal and a violin bow. And it sounds like a human scream. This symbol scream was a starting point to write the music. I started from those harmonics to write for strings or brass or woodwinds. And the sound designer used it as a starting point to create the final bus scream. And there's a fine line between music and sound design. And there's moments that it isn't precise that is, is it music or sound design? And this creates a lot of fear. Indeed it does. Mm. So yeah, what, what he's basically saying there is the, the final boss, which is the wall rider, the ghost terminator that we've spoken about. That is the scream of that. I mean, Outlast is that. It is like the mix between sound design and music. Like it's all so shrill and unsettling, obviously. Yeah, it seems like it, it feels like it's it's not every so often that you really kind of feel like the mood and makeup of a game is so closely tied to its sound design. And when that does happen, it's always really, really lovely. It reminded me a little bit of um, The Instrument. Oh, yeah. I was just about to say it from Tomb Raider, from our Tomb Raider episode. Did it remind you of that as well? Yeah. Because I, I, th- I think all of us said that during that video, during our Tomb Raider episode, when we were looking at that video, like the instrument, it looked cool. And it was like, oh, and the sounds that it created. But kind of in play, none of us acknowledged it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was It was really like way more subtle, wasn't it? I sort of thought, oh yeah, I, I, I remember those noises from the game. But it wasn't like, oh my God, that is Tomb Raider. <laughs> you know? Whereas with, with this, it sort of is really. You sort of think, oh yeah, that's, that's Outlast, yeah. So that is some of your marketing for Outlast. So let us 
look at some pre-launch press coverage. And I went out and I found some YouTube channels and maybe some kind of smaller outlets because Outlast wasn't getting a ton of press, to be quite Mm. frank. It was very much a, a sleeper hit. So the first clip I have here, the first thing I wanted to highlight is a video from PAX East 2013 uh, published on the N Joystick YouTube channel on the 25th of March 2013. And the clip I wanted to play from this video was of co-founder and game designer Philippe Maureen talking about how Mirror's Edge's movement was an inspiration for Outlast, which is certainly not something I thought of prior to playing the game, but after playing the game, I did kind of get so yeah, take a listen to this. We were looking for a way to make the chases as exciting as possible. And you know, we thought that uh, being influenced by Mirror's Edge, uh, having a, a body, feeling that body, feeling the weight, will help uh, make the world feel more credible, more real. And uh, the more believable the game world is, then the scarier it will be. And I know we are going to be talking about the chases and whatnot later mm. on. So we may talk about more kind of... More of that, the weightiness of the body in the mirror's edge comparison a little bit more later on. From this interview as well, I have a second clip of Philippe Maureen talking about the kind of research that the team did looking into criminally insane people. This wasn't mentioned a ton in interviews that I found. This is one of the few mentions. So take a listen to this. Uh, we're working with scientific consultants. Uh, they're called FWAC, and they've been helping us uh, with profiles of patients, trying to ground in reality uh, what's happening in the asylum. They're also helping us with the experiments that's going on there. Is that something the player are going to find out uh, later on in the game? What are the nature of the experiments and who's behind those uh, experiments? Now, what he said there was the company that was helping them was a company called FWAC, right? I went and I found this company. Mm-hmm. As f- to the best of my knowledge, they are defunct. They're not doing anything anymore. Hmm. They do still have like a blog. And the most recent blog, like I'm just going onto it here now, was posted in the 2nd of February 2015. Like looking at recent posts, it's like aligning game design to accurate, accurate science, talking science and the Hulk with Stanford University, educating on the past, present and future of human augmentation. So it seems like that's what they were trying to do. Yeah, was maybe help developers with certain topics and whatever in their game. Now, I don't know if I would say that it's a home run. In Outlast, mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Yeah. Maybe something we will talk about later again. But I did just kind of want to play that to let, you know, listeners know that this was a team that said, you know, we did research. Like we kind of looked into this mm. and, you know, put our best foot forward. Another interview that Philippe Morin, he was definitely on um, press duty. He did an interview at Paxi's 2013 with a YouTube channel called Third Rate Minion. And I have a clip here of Morin talking about how Red Barrels was treating the camcorder like a gun in the game. And this is quite interesting. So the first voice you're going to hear is the YouTuber, Third Rate Minion, and the second voice 
is Philippe Morin. So take a listen to this. Now, the protagonist is armed with a camera that he's used to film everything. Is there anything else in the game that he's going to have, or is this like his the main element of the game, like any weapons or anything even? It's the main element. There are no weapons uh, whatsoever. I mean, the, we're approaching it like the camcorder is the gun. So that's why when you have to reload, you press R just like if it was a gun. And, uh, yeah, no, we, we think uh, it's when the player is uh, uh, defenseless against the enemies that uh, it's as scary uh, as it can be. The camera is your gun. Uh, yeah. I think it sounds good. It sounds like an interesting... It does sound good, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I get, like, I get it. You know, you point and shoot. You know, there is a comparison there. But, like... Yeah, I wouldn't have said... I mean, guns in, in games are sort of empowering, whereas for me, the camera here wasn't exactly empowering. I would say that it's more of a character than the actual, like, gun reference. I, I Like, I know it's it's very... Mm. There's a moment that we'll talk about later on. I don't know if anyone else wrote it down. I actually think I might have wrote down my notes about a moment where the camera goes away from you. And... So I'll get, to, I'll get back to this point when I speak about that point. Another interview uh, with, again, Philippe Maureen. This was with PlayStation Lifestyle. This was posted on the 20th of June, 2013. And uh, in this interview, Maureen was asked if he was worried about how the action-loving general public would react to there being no combat in Outlast. So Maureen said, quote... Playing hide-and-seek is one of the oldest games. When you're a child, you play hide-and-seek and you're afraid of the dark. So I think the experience we've created goes back to a primal fear of humanity. And I think that the response so far is great. It's basically a stealth game with a horror context. I think people will dig it. No combat is the starting point, but the whole approach is really about making players suffer. Ha ha ha. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. I was hoping you were going to make note of what was in the square brackets there. Mm -hmm. Maureen laughs. And uh, one other interview here again with Maureen. He spoke with the YouTuber Ash Tarek. Uh, This was posted on the 15th of September 2013. So this is only like just after the game has launched. And Maureen was asked about some of the influences of Outlast. So he rattled off some films. And I always find this quite interesting to see kind of what, what films are they trying to pull from. So this is what Maureen said to the YouTuber Ash Tarek. I watch a lot of, a lot of those movies uh, several times. Uh, uh, Cloverfield, Wreck, or the American version Quarantine. Uh, and also, you know, the movies for the asylum feel like uh, Shutter Island. Uh and the the, uh, the feeling of um, uh, of being isolated, like in the uh, the thing or uh, the shining, those were our our mo- uh, biggest influence in terms of movies. Now he obviously mentions loads. Yeah, <laughs> he mentions a lot of films. Do you think they're all fair? Like the phone footage stuff is quite you know that's very obvious, obviously. Yeah, but I I do uh, the first. Three, maybe three or four, he mentions. I'm like, yeah, 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 cool, mm, cool, cool. Mm. Uh, even down to Shutter Island, for example, I think that's a like one that I wouldn't have thought of at all, but it, it does, it does fit in definitely. I think then when the thing and the shining is mentioned, I'm like, ah, you're gone, you're gone way off now. Like, you, you, you may as well come out there and say The Matrix next. You're just mentioning horror films, you're just mentioning <laughs> horror films now. That's just kind of like, yeah, okay, they're classics, like, but they have nothing of. The, 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 it's not the same. But Shutter Island Wreck, definitely. I'm surprised you didn't say something like Blair Witch Project. 
Yeah. yeah. I kind of like the idea that it's also, it's like it, in those found footage things, this is a chance for you to make the footage that will be found. Yeah. yeah. So this is a look at some of the marketing and the pre-launch press coverage uh, for Outlast. And yeah, a big thanks to, you know, all those YouTubers um, that covered Outlast because without you, uh, we wouldn't have much to talk about because as I said, it wasn't getting much play in the press. But that would obviously change once the game came out. But yeah, uh, we are going to take a quick little break and then we will be back to tell you fine folks what we actually thought of the game in our review. So we will be back right after this. All right then, let us chat about what we actually thought of Outlast. But just before that, I want to know what your knowledge of the game was before you played it for this very podcast. Adam Carroll, why don't you start us off? Had you heard of Outlast? Had you played Outlast prior to playing it for Stealth Boom Boom? I actually played this in 2020 for the first time. I always had it in mind to play it. But when it comes to these types of games, I don't rush to play it myself. I like to play these things with a buddy, which is what I did in 2020. I played Outlast with a friend and we had an absolute brilliant time. We thought it was just like, it was just so much fun to play um, with, with a friend over a couple of beers, you know, lights off and just take it all in. Good old, good old sure. time that was. But um, this was now the f- my second time playing it, but on my own. Josh, what about you? Knew about it, heard of it, part of that wave of things, amnesia, soma, you know, everything that kind of sprang up after Penumbra. Uh, Didn't play it, didn't play it, sort of couldn't be bothered. Why did you not want to play it? Was there a reason? I'd sort of had a bit of enough of of like that sort of thing. Like there was a real sort of boom and it's not fair on Outlast because Outlast was actually like, you know, one of the... Part of the boom. Yeah, and, and but then, yeah, I sort of... Just sort of missed it initially, and then just thought, ah, oh, it's one of them games. I'll, I'll possibly get around to that at some point. But it, they're not it, weirdly. I really like horror, and I really like stealth, but they're not games that I sort of gravitate toward. Even Alien: Isolation, I only kind of actively sought that out because I love Alien, not because I love stealthy horror. So it's kind of a weird one for me. Did the YouTube? Influence of us turn you off. Oh, all. that's actually a really good point. Yeah, it, I probably also saw a load of folks do that thing where they film people screaming at it. You know, those things that take off on let, Let's Plays. And I just think, oh, I don't know why. I know it makes me sound like a right. <laughs> but it's just like, I'm like, oh, well, if it's popular, I'm going to leave that out. I, I promise it's not like that. I, I just, when there's a faff and a load of hot air about something, I'm just like, shut up. I'll get around to it later. And actually, I didn't get around to it until recently. Yeah, screw all those people that played it on YouTube. So I actually live streamed Outlast for Video Gamer. But yes, I live streamed the first half slash two thirds of it. I think it was within the first month or two of when I first joined Video Gamer. And it was myself and Rock Paper Shotguns, Alice Bell, or just real author of actual books now, Alice Bell. Uh, But yeah, we played the first half, two thirds, as I said, sometime in the autumn of 2016. And we didn't finish it because, as far as I can remember, there was one aspect that made both of us uh, just kind of stop. 
And playing it again, I am reminded of what that was. So I'm going to talk about that probably during the boom boom section. Did it have the same effect on me as it did seven or so years later? Oh, intrigue. Listen on to find (laughs) out. Ghost schools. Um, But yeah, that was our knowledge of the game before we played it for the podcast. Mm -hmm. But for those of you who didn't play along at home, let me give you a more kind of serious summary as to what Outlast is. So Outlast is a first person horror game where you must escape a building. Uh, In this game's case, a psychiatric hospital. The game isn't split up into levels per se, but it is split up into objectives. So like find so-and-so on the third floor or make your way through this psychiatric ward or the sewers or whatever it is. So it's a game about progressing from A to B. Occasionally, these objectives will require you to do two or three things before you can do the main thing that you want to do. So, you know, it'll be uh, press these two buttons before you press the big button that opens the door, that type of thing. Obviously, of course, this game is also trying to scare you quite a bit at various points. So you will be being stalked by a baddie. This doesn't happen in every area in the game, but you will have to contend with one of the hospital patients trying to track you down and kill you, basically. Uh, During these sequences, you have to try and avoid the baddie. uh, And you do that by hiding under a bed or inside lockers or just in dark corners in the room. Because, importantly... I mean, this is paramount. You can't defend yourself. So you just have to run and hide. And we're, we're going to talk about, talk about that more in a second. Uh, I nearly forgot, actually, another important thing. You are in the dark quite a bit in this game, like pitch black darkness. So to see where you're going, and I mean, I mentioned this earlier, uh, because it was compared to a gun, but you don't have a gun. You have a camcorder. And that camcorder has night vision capabilities. But that drains a supply of batteries that you have. So you need to be mindful of that uh, when you're using your night vision. So you can't just have it on like 24-7. And that is more or less Outlast. So let us talk about what we thought of the game. And the usual way we do our review of the games here on Stealth Boom Boom is we split it up into sections. So we first talk about the stealth of the game. Then we talk about the Boom Boom, which is the more explosive bits and also just kind of the other gameplay bits as well that aren't stealthy. Uh, We also talk about the most noteworthy mission leveler area. And I guess in... Uh, Outlast case, it'll be area or mission rather than, as I said, it's not split up into like levels or stages. And we also talk about what we thought of the story. And then we have a sort of a miscellaneous section at the end where we talk about anything that doesn't fit into any of the other sections. So firstly, let us talk about the stealth. And I wanted to start us off by... Talking about how the stealth is quite simple, really. Like, I, but even I suppose before I get into that, like, uh, and I said this a second ago, like a stealthy approach is so important in Outlast. Uh, I mean, because like, if you try anything else, you will die. Like, the game quite literally tells you at, at the very beginning of the game, before you start, you get a message, uh, some text on screen, and you're told 
uh, things like Outlast is oh it's vi- oh it's very violent and oh it's gory. But uh, the sentence that stood out to me is quote you are not a fighter to navigate the horrors of Mount Massive and expose the truth. Your only choices are to run, hide, or die. Now I can't remember exactly what Penumbra said, but there was something similar, I think, at the beginning of Penumbra, uh, or the beginning of Overture, I should say. I think it was a bit less dramatic. Like, in Penumbra, it's worth saying, you could fight back once you had the pickaxe. It was intentionally awkward swinging it about, but you could do it. In Remothered, another game we covered in Stealth Boom Boom, you were able to stab your pursuer in that game, Felton. Uh, You could stab him in the neck with, like, uh, the ludicrous amount of knives that were just strewn about the place. It would kill Felton, but it would slow them down and would give you a chance to get away. Uh, and actually, another game, taking it away from horror a little bit, Ghost of a Tail. Yeah. You could, at times, lob explosive pine cones at mm. very specific enemies. And there were those, like, jars of slime that would knock out some guards for a, a period of time. Now, I pick those three because out of the games we've looked at, they probably have the least amount of combat, I think, anyway. Mm. Whereas Outlast is the very first game we've spoken about on here where you have no combat options whatsoever. And, and like, I, I know I'm zeroing in on that um, sentence about the running, hiding, or dying, but that does sum up quite a lot of this game. Like, the stealthy approach isn't optional. It's necessary in order for you to to progress. And, like... On the surface, as I said, it is one of the more simple stealth systems we've come across yet for this podcast. I don't really need to say much more because like it's kind of covered in that sentence. If you're spotted, the baddie that's stalking you will run after you and look to kill you. And it will do that in, say, depending on the baddie, like two or sometimes three successive hits from them and you're like dead. And the thing about Outlast, right, is that you can't magically see through walls. You don't have a teeny tiny camera that you can slide under a door to see what's on the other side. You don't have a mini map in the top right of the screen that shows you like the vision cone of uh, Chris Walker or Traeger or, or any of your pursuers. Instead, you have the fantastic sound design of Outlast. And uh, to, to even go back to what we were talking about earlier and like the kind of sound design and music and the atmosphere that it creates. But it's pivotal from a gameplay point of view as well. Like it's a bit like what I'm what I'm going to talk about in a second. It's a bit like, do you remember the, I think it was the motion detector in Metal Gear Solid 3 mm. that would beep faster and faster the closer an enemy was to you. The AP sensor, the anti-personnel sensor. Yes, yes. Was the AP sensor, yeah. In Outlast, you don't have gadgets. You don't have anything. You don't have an AP sensor or motion detector or anything like that. What you have is your breathing and your heartbeat. And, like, first-person stealthiness, it's very difficult to pull off in a lot of cases without something helping the player because... In first person, the player is seeing less of the environment uh, than if they were playing a third person game. So, you know, without some magical seeing through walls thing or a radar or whatever, it does tip the stealth a bit too far in favour of the bad guys. In Outlast, as I said, your helping hand is the 
fucking great sound design hmm. of the game. Like, maybe we'll talk about it a bit more when we're talking about, like, say, the scares and all that. But, uh, yeah, as, as I said, like, it's design just so important to uh, general gameplay as well. Hmm. So if you're crouched down behind a desk or you're in a locker or wherever you are, if you're hiding from a baddie that's walking around the environment a la Mr. X or whatever, I mentioned Felton from um, uh, uh, Remothered, or you will hear your breathing and your heartbeat. And the closer the baddie gets to your location, the shorter your breathing becomes and the faster your heart begins to beat. Now, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty confident the game doesn't have a big message that pops up on screen saying, listen to your heart and your asthmatic breathing. Mm, Like, I think you just learn that while you're playing. Like, I didn't notice it at first. I think it was maybe like, I don't know, the second time I was up against the big lad, Chris Walker, and he was following me about the place. Like, I just thought it was absolutely fantastic because that is a genuine kind of concern I have about like first person stealth games is like you are restricting my view of the environment yeah. which is so important in uh, a game like a stealth game or a game that has stealth and here a, a way to kind of get around that without going down the route of allowing you to see through walls or whatever it is you listen to your heart and if it's just if it starts to go like faster and faster and faster and faster you know that the baddies close by. I thought it was great. Mm. Well, I love it when 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 games do that. When they fold stuff that would be either a UI, you know, a hard element, or or some sort of mechanical thing. I love it when it's folded in just to the fabric of it completely naturally. So, so sometimes they it can be a little bit corny when they try and do that. You know, mm. like in the getaway where it's like, oh, there's blood on your blazer and that's sort of your mm. health bar, but it doesn't really work yeah. and it's not that accurate. And it's funny. I never used it like that. But you're saying this now, I'm sort of thinking, that's really bloody clever, that. I yeah. love that. But I didn't do that when I played. So to touch on one of your points, the hiding in the, in the, in the well, just hiding anywhere, but especially the locker, because you've got the little peep grill, which is just classic stuff hiding in. I mean, I guess MGS2 was like the, maybe the first game to do that, where you peep out the little, the little slats mm-hmm. in the locker. But it's, you know, it's been in loads. It's in Alien Isolation. It's in all sorts. Something about hiding. It's, it's exactly what Maureen said when he was talking about going back to your childhood, you know, to hide and seek. There is that thrill. And it does work better in first person. And that's why uh, Metal Gear Solid can sort of have its cake and eat it too. Because when you are hiding in a locker or something, then you are really restricted. And it is a lovely tension. And actually, the tension does tie into the sound design. And that's why when I was, <laughs> when I was your brilliant point just there about the, the heartbeat, I was thinking, oh yeah, that, that, that re- that's, that's why I liked hiding in the locker so much. But bugger me if I did not use that mechanic to my advantage at all. <laughs> I was just in the locker, pooing my pants going this is fucking nuts <laughs> but, but, but actually I, sh- I could have been a little bit savvy there but i do love um turning the it's when you've got the night vision on um when i was hiding in one of the lockers from one of the uh, dangerous lads it wasn't chris walker it was one of the 
bog standard pipe wielding ones. I, I quite like turning the night vision off and then just peeping. You can sometimes get a little bit of light in this game, depending on where you are, especially when you look through the little locker slats, where you can just see a little patch of something and just seeing like the dark, sh- like the flicker go past it was always like a, a nice little jolt. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think unconsciously I just, I just, I, I was just sort of scared by it, but now realize, ah. Oh, I could 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 have could have used that to my advantage. Bit bit annoyed to be honest, but there you go. <laughs> but those situations where you are hiding, like you say in the locker, or yes, you can hide under beds and like you can also just use the darkness to your yeah. advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll say a splinter cell. Yeah, and if you're hiding in the dark patch of the world and like you don't have an enemy walk uh, walk into you, you will be okay. Yeah, but. Adam Carroll, it's very, very, as you astutely point out here in the in our doc, very, very intense. Yeah, it, this game has to, like, from the word go, set itself up, like, so strongly on delivering that feeling. Because from the word go on Outlast, you, you're not rushing. You're, you're, you're going, so you're checking every corner. You realise what you have at your disposal. All oh, this is there. And you're kind of going, I have nothing but this camera. And all of a sudden, I'm in this, like, Asylum and it is just not pleasant and you creep (laughs) all the time. And when you come across like an enemy of some sort or whatever, it is so nerve wracking. Like especially for the first decent chunk of the game anyway. Every time I encountered an enemy walking by, I'd be like, oh no. And you'd be kind of wondering where did they go? And I love that there's no map. There's no, as you say, called no map. There's no kind of radar. It's all just your heartbeat, whatever. I played this with headphones as well this time round, and like that was really kind of like really hitting in because that's how I'm feeling. Exactly how I'm feeling, mm. the way the character is feeling. I'm just like, oh, this is brutal. My heart is going literally the same way. But what it what it also does very well, and I don't know if you felt this way too, but I think the game does like this mad thing for the first at least like two, three opening hours where you walk into rooms and there's just like lads like sitting there. Like there's one particular scene where they're sitting in this like sitting room looking at like a screen of, I think, I think there's nothing on the screen. I think it's just static. Yeah. There's like about four of them just sitting there and like, you're kind of going, are, are they going to attack me? Like, are they different to the guys I just passed there? <laughs> like what's going on? And it does this weird kind of toying with your head a small bit. And that intensity ramps up even further where like, they don't actually go near you at all. But when I initially came into the room, I snuck so slowly around them and I was like, there's not, mm. there's nothing. And I love all that. That brings me back to the next point. I think the game does a really good job at balancing out the whole thing of can this enemy see me from that distance? Because there are situations that are not set up and they're not on purpose. It's just by chance that I might stop to have the camera out and zoom in. And all of a sudden there's a fella looking like Elijah Wood from Sin City staring straight at me. And I'm just like, oh no. When you zoom, like it's instant, like zoom out <laughs> straight away. It's like, but in my head I'm going, can he see me? Did he see me? What's going on? And then you might zoom back in and then he'll just like walk off. And that to me is excellent because it's obviously like, it's fair. You're in the dark room, whatever. Like they're not going to see you. But to me, I'm like, but can they? Like, I don't know what the idea is behind these lads yet. <laughs> There's a certain element of like other games. They punish you for that kind of thing where they go. They want the enemy to constantly catch you all the time. And like, I, I can't really like 
recall this fully, but I think Outlast 2 suffers from that a little bit, where enemies constantly see you and are because it's like they ramp up, we want you to constantly be chased. Now we'll get on to that later on. But in this, I think it's really well balanced that like you're you're sneaking around enemies, can they see you from that distance? And yes, like when they do catch you, I think it's fair game. Like, do you know, I, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. You caught me there. But <laughs> I just think the whole lot of that is is done very well in Outlast. I don't think the game is overly punishing. It couldn't be because you've nothing to use to defend yourself. Do you know what I mean? So that's where, like, mm. all of this is just working very well. So, yeah, that's just something that really slowed to me this time around. Following on from what you said there, you mentioned you using your camera in the dark. We've mentioned it already. Josh, tell the people at home about the, the night vision camera and how in our doc here you have compared it to a game that the three founders also worked on, the original Splinter Cell. Yeah, it is. I think it's really, really clever because so uh, listeners to our Splinter Cell episode will know that in Splinter Cell, when you, one of the key mechanics of the game is not just um, using your night vision goggles, which are the sort of Sam Fisher iconic green glowing goggles, but also shooting out the lights because it just, you felt really safe when you were in the dark because they couldn't see you. And I thought that it was a lovely uh, twist, a lovely inversion of that in Outlast because when you put the goggles on in Splinter Cell and you get the lovely little noise as they sort of charge up, you just feel powerful. You're just like, oh, brilliant. I can see all you idiots and you can't see me because I've shot out all the lights. In Outlast, on a mechanical level, it is empowering. And it, arguably, it's just as empowering as Splinter Cell. When you, right, when you put it on paper, it's like, yeah, you can, you can see them and a lot of the time they can't see you and you, you do have an advantage. However... It also, well, firstly, it, it's it's very, very eerie. It's scary. It's a different kind of night vision. You, you, you can't see absolutely everything like you can in Splinter Cell. There's very, very cleverly uh, designed dark spots. And Adam kind of touched on that, that, that zoom mechanic, which is always kind of, you do it and then you bloody well regret doing it because you see something horrible or something that really makes you jump. So, so it's like, oh, I've got this, I've got this really brilliant tool that in theory gives me a one up. Only every time I use it, I shit myself for various reasons <laughs> because of the way it's designed, the way it looks or, or, the, or the way it mechanically works. And there are times, and I agree with Adam totally, like this, when you just think of the many ways they could have fucked this up and it could and it, it, like getting it perfect and sort of chiseling it perfectly into place must just be an inordinately difficult task. And they pretty much just about bloody managed it. But there, there are a few moments when you flip the night vision, you know, on the camera and, or I had, I had moments anyway, I don't know if you guys did, where it's like, oh yeah, I, I can see that guy and I'm, and I'm sort of zooming in. But, but, you know, there's no solid on radar. I really don't know what the range is mm-hmm. here. Um, he actually, and like once or twice, it was like, <laughs> he's looking right at me and actually can see me and I'm fucked. And then there are other, <laughs> there are other times when they couldn't. And I suppose I came to the end of it thinking, on the whole, that was decent. There was just enough chaos. That there were rules in place that I understood. And there was probably just about the right dollop of chaos to so that I'm never quite sure. A slightly bigger dollop 
and I would have gone, well, this is, this is really annoying. This doesn't work. And I'm never sure of what goes on. So, you know, fuck it. But I think they just about got it right. It may be that there's a couple of times when I, when I perhaps got a bit frustrated, but on the whole, really clever re- re- way to take it up something that should be empowering and turn it on the player and say, have a bit of that. Yes. You've got an upper hand, but you need new underwear. <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't know if I'd call it a handicap. Like it is still an advantage, the, the night vision mm. um, camera, but it's just like, I guess it's, it, it's when you turn it on, it's showing you the horrors that you're trying to run away from. Mm-hmm. So it's like, sometimes there's a safety in the darkness and like yeah. a safety of like not knowing what's waiting for you. Uh, sometimes, yes, like right in front of you. And you mentioned it, like it, it has this lovely vignetted view where the yeah. kind of outside of it is is so dark hmm. like yeah it, it isn't like when sam fisher sticks on his goggles and he can just see everything perfect and it's grand like sam has the power in the dark whereas you do to an extent but there is still such a fear from mm. it because of how the night vision looks mm. and also what one thing that i wanted to mention was how Hence, it is when you use your night vision because your little batteries are huh. going down. Yeah. So like, I mean, one thing actually I want to say, but even before that is I just like that you having a camcorder makes sense. Like yeah. you're a journalist, you're documenting the story. Mm. You No, yeah, you have a very fancy camcorder again, <laughs> like with a fucking night vision, whatever. Yeah. But uh, yeah. it, it does, it makes sense. But the thing... That, and I guess doesn't make sense at all, uh, is that, so you have a, or your night vision camera is battery powered, right? It takes disposable AA batteries. And this is actually quite unrealistic because for some reason, your batteries only drain when you have the night vision turned on. Brilliant, eh? You can have the normal <laughs> camera on 24-7. Oh yeah, unlimited. Don't know yeah. why, yeah. but whatever. <laughs> but like, I, 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 yeah. I, I mostly do love the night vision, like for, for many reasons. But I, firstly, I'd never finished the game, as I said uh, a while ago. So I didn't know how long was left when I was playing it. Now I had an idea, but I, you know, I, I didn't know. And for that reason, when I was playing it for this podcast, I was always conscious of how many batteries I had on me. You can have up to 10 yeah. on normal difficulty. And I think at my most panicked, I was probably only down to five. Yeah. So, so like I was never really in trouble of getting lost in the dark, but that still didn't stop me from like trying to conserve my batteries, you know, for fear I'd run out of them. It's basically like Alan Wake's energizer batteries for his torch works on the same kind of thing. Do you know, I was exactly the same, but my, my thing, it, it ran out for me. And I'd say like the first third of the game, I was exactly like you. I was very, oh, fucking hell, better turn this night vision off and eat my bloody carrots. But, but you know, thinking oh, I should, see. but actually I quickly sort of twigged like, ah, 
I'm never actually running out of these. Like, just like the the, the, yeah, actually, yeah. the number of batteries in this asylum is fucking mental. So like, yeah. <laughs> they're they're everywhere. So I'm just cannot now. Then, Cullum, let me ask you a question, Mister Bloody Sound Design. Um, can the enemies? And I don't know the answer, but it's brilliant. If so, can the enemies hear the beeping when you're low on battery? Because I never figured out if they could, and it's genius if they can. Um, But even if they can't, the very thought that they might made me put the camera away, and that's really clever. But do you know if they can hear the beep when you're getting low on battery? No, Ah. no, I I don't. But... To your point, I also had that thought because I know they can hear you closing doors. So I was like, oh, can they, yes, hear the beep of a battery or me Mm. putting in new batteries or whatever? I would guess they can't, but I I can't say for definite. It kind of goes back to that, like, never went lower than five. But I was like, oh, but what if I do, <laughs> you know? And it was yeah, like, yeah. I was mostly fine. And I did even check out of curiosity. I actually burned a battery for, for science. <laughs> Each battery, at least on normal difficulty, uh, it has two and a half minutes of juice it's the perfect amount of time for each battery okay. it's so well measured yeah it really really is it, it may seem like the camera is, is is a slight gimmick in a way but this goes back to that that um interview where he's talking about it being a gun and how it's here i think that there's a moment where you lose the camera and it's how at that point that i felt holy shit like there's there's many reasons to the panic of losing the camera in this game and i think that's where it it doesn't it isn't a weapon clearly but and it's not just a thing that is obviously your way to see through the the, the dark rooms but it's the fact it's literally the only other thing that can tell your story Mm. for other people to believe and that's where i think it's like having your partner with you or something in this kind of game you know like i love that there's no walkie talkie and you're not talking to some guy on the outside and he's like do you know all that kind of chronic stuff that's like it's just <laughs> it's just not really engrossing in any way I just love it's you it's this camera and you're trying to get out and it has a thing with, with regarding the night vision thing as well I just think that the night vision thing in anything horror related always hits every single time in no matter what kind of thing I watch whether you, you look at like Wreck, which he, which he mentioned, like the moment that night vision hits, you inside are going, oh no. And like <laughs> that, fe- that feeling is pure, like something bad is going to happen here. Definitely. It's the exact same thing at the end of Science of the Lambs. When it happens there, you're just like, oh my God, this is just fucked. Like, you know, this whole situation in horror, it never feels stale. That kind of whole effect. It never ever does because it is just rotten. Even though you can see, <laughs> it's just rotten. You don't want to see. You just want to be out in the daylight. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's basically what it comes down to. Yeah, it's like it, it helps you see, but like you're like, ah, no, I don't, I don't think I want to. I just want to go back to bed. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Cameron Outlast. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. So that is what we thought of the stealth in Outlast. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, then we will be back to talk about the most noteworthy mission level or area in the game, as well as what we thought of the boom boom. So we'll be back right after this. All right, then let us now chat about the boom boom 
of Outlast, which is generally the more explosive parts of a game that we talk about on Stealth Boom Boom, as well as just kind of the other gameplay bits that aren't stealthy, pretty much. But why not let us talk about those kind of explosive bits? And in Outlast, Adam Carroll, an explosive bit is kind of the chase when your pursuer is in pursuit. Yeah. It's just thrilling. I think it's it's really really fun, um, and I think it, it it also goes back to the compliment I was making regarding like, can the enemy see me? How where are they in this location to see me? The fact I don't ever know the distance of an enemy and where there's where they are in my surroundings. When you're like, oh, I'm getting to my location. Next week, this music goes. It's the most fucking frantic. <laughs> horn section that just takes off and they chase you I at that stage it's like it's like someone at the start of a race and the gun hits off and you all I do immediately is run I don't even think of what direction I'm going I'm just like gone straight away don't know where the person is don't know where the enemy is and they could be like the other side of a room and there could be a table blocking their obstruction all that kind of stuff but I am just boom out of here see you later and it, it, it is fun. And I think this is where we can bring in the whole, the mirror's edge thing that they're talking about. Mm. There is a part of the running that, yes, it feels weighty. It doesn't feel like I get caught in a wall or anything. It's, it's not awkward. It's also not parkour. You're not doing the whole, <laughs> no. I don't know, what's the mirror's edge character? Faith? Faith. Is that, the, yeah, is that her yeah. name? You're not, you're not doing that. You're not swinging off poles and doing all that kind of malarkey, really. But I can see what they mean by it. And I think that how, how the character feels in the running aspect on, in these situations, I think it's, 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 done, it's done right. How did you feel about the, the overall chases? I thought it was great. Can I just say, I, lo- I really like a game, any video game, first person video game, where you look down, you can see the fella's little feet. Well, I think that's <laughs> yeah, what yeah. they were mostly talking about when it came to Mirror's Edge. It was like, you have feet, you yeah. have mm. arms, hands. You are a person rather than a floating camera. Yeah. To look down and see some feet, especially a torso, just sort of, <laughs> sometimes it looks a little bit funny and you kind of, look, you know, you sort of, when you're trying to walk over the scaffolding and the feet don't really hit the scaffolding right. <laughs> yeah, but I yeah. think on the whole, it, it does kind of give you a nice little sense of weight. I loved that mechanic where you you run it away from someone and it feels very physical. Like you could, you can you feel the feet thudding, and then they do the thing where you press. I can't remember which button it is. One of the shoulder buttons you press, and you look. You can look back behind you while you're running, and that's so brilliant and so simple. And it was a small thing that just kind of blew me away a bit. I was like, because it taps into what the developers were saying uh, that we were talking about in, in a lot of the the interviews that they, you know, I think it was Philip Maureen when he was sort of talking about, it really goes back to childhood, obviously hide and seek and, you know, the games that kids play and, and being afraid of the dark. But also it's so perfect when you're a kid and you're playing it or tag or whatever, and you're running away from someone, you do look over your shoulder to see where, and it like, it heightens the excitement as much as the fear. Like you could, and you find, I found myself laughing like you, like you would when you were a kid, when someone's chasing you, like, it, like I'm trying to, it's self-preservation. I'm trying to save miles up sure 
but at the same time, I'm keen to, to look behind at the nutty maniac who's coming after me with a lead pipe. And I just think that they didn't have to put that. It's a lovely little touch. You wouldn't say that it was like a, a, a meaningless or a superfluous mechanic. It's like, I'm really glad it's, it doesn't have to be in there, but I'm really glad it did. I'm really glad it did. But, but it did lead to one of the biggest problems that I have with the game. But I will, I'll leave you suspenseful on that and I'll get to that shortly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with Janesh, that camera angle. I think Dying Light does a similar thing as well. It's really good fun, but I think in, in a game like Outlast, I wouldn't have used it quite a lot because, as I said, I, I would be like, oh, I'm just enjoying this chase for the crack. No, <laughs> yeah. I always kind of felt like just keep looking forward and just keep going. <laughs> it is fun. It is definitely fun. Well, we've spoken about the good times. Here comes old curmudgeon bastard prick. Come to ruin our fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I mean, not totally, right? Because I want to stress that like Outlast is terrifying like terrifying until it isn't and i kind of want to stick up for a little bit so so like say with the advent of your prestige horrors like say uh and i'm talking about films here now babadook it follows i mean get out i suppose like things like that it feels like there is a snobbery around things such as the jump scare Right. Mm -hmm. It's it's like because those films, the prestige horror are tackling heavier topics than just ooh ghosts and ghoulies. (laughs) Like every horror must now avoid suddenly frightening the viewer. I also want to stress, I'm not saying your Babadooks or your get outs are rubbish. I think both of them are fantastic films. I just like I suppose what I'm saying is that. You can also incorporate jump scares. Like, they shouldn't be seen as a crutch. They should be seen as a tool that you can use to your advantage. Like, they're a great way to jolt your audience into this heightened sense of awareness in a millisecond, you know? I don't know. I I just hate the way that they're seen as entirely lesser than, like, Christ, I don't know, like a, 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 a fan of you know, horror literature turning their nose up at Stephen King because he's popular. Mm. I do think uh, there's a there's a real art to a good jump scare. And I think it's like the argument a few years ago, it's the use of CGI. I think it's not, or just special effects in general, really. It's like, it's not that the thing itself is bad. It's that the abuse of that thing is bad. Well, Josh Wise, thank you very much. If you rely on jump scares, yes then it's it's going to be an issue. Mm. And, oh, Outlast, 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 Outlast. It really does rely on jump scares a ludicrous amount. Mm. Like, most things around terror in the game, once you spend enough time in Mount Massive, I don't know, it, it sort of dulls the impact of all the, the things that are meant to frighten you. Like, I won't go into it too much because you're going to talk about the opening in a bit, Adam. So, mm-hmm. uh, but like that first 20, 25 minutes, it is outstanding. It is perfectly paced, incredible atmosphere. It is just wonderful. Mm. But you spend six hours or so in this world and the 10th guy who pops his head from behind a corner is just like, oh Christ, here we go. Like, <laughs> I, I do want to stress that like when it works, it does work. And there's one very specific later on jump scare that works an 
absolute treat. And you reference it, Adam. So it's the bit where you're doing your platforming and you drop your camera. Camera drops mm-hmm. from a height, goes down below, you have to retrieve it. Once you retrieve it, you're in control and you will naturally spin the camera around to go back from where you came. And just like there, straight in front of you, is two or three baddies ready to give chase. I shat myself when I saw that. (laughs) And this was in the last like quarter or so of Outlast, I'd say. So like when it works, that's the point I'm making. Like (laughs) when the jump scare works, it really does work. But I think even that example... Uh, I've sort of come upon a big issue, I suppose, I have with Outlast. Like, I think that uh, uh, that specific scare I just mentioned works because you're in control. Yes. You're, like, you're not expecting it. Because often, Outlast scares, and I mean, like, often, Outlast scares are scripted. Yes. You, you are funneled down a fairly narrow path, and you will see... Josh, Adam, anyone who played it before listening to this podcast or anyone who does play it, you will come across the same scares that I did in the exact same way. And again, it's the volume of these scripted scares that like mute their effectiveness. So like because of this, it also becomes relatively easy then to recognize when you're in a safe area versus an unsafe area. And when I say safe area, I mean an area where you're not being chased by one of the asylum's patients that want to kill you. I don't mean like a safe room from Resident Evil, basically. Mm. That distinction is important because Outlast doesn't broadcast safe versus unsafe rooms. It's always trying to trick you into thinking there is imminent danger and I'm fine with that. Like, And in fact, uh, it does some things I like, such as Uh, in some of these safe areas, it'll have hiding places for you. So you'll see a locker or you'll see a bed or, uh, and you'll be like, oh shit, maybe I should make note of that because I might have to hide there. And Mm. you might never need to hide there because you're in in a safe area. So it does do some things, but more often than not, it's easy to spot the difference between uh, a safe area and an unsafe area because the game will, in a way, announce to you that one of the murderous baddies is here. Yeah. Typically, that's either musical cues or you'll just hear them. They'll announce their arrival or you will quite literally see them enter. And again, it'll be in a scripted way that you can't miss. Yeah. I know it's not a terribly long game. As I think we might have said, like it's probably five, six hours, maybe. Tops. Yeah. But the point with all this is that uh, I I don't know. I, I keep coming back to that it's probably still a tad too long. Mm -hmm. Like the game gives you a chance. This is the problem. The game gives you a chance to figure out its sleight of hand through repetition and the prolonged exposure, I suppose. Like what you spoke about, Adam, the chase sequences, they're obviously more random. So it doesn't run into the same issue with that. Like, but it's the, yeah, it's, it's those scripted sequences i suppose i totally agree with everything you could either say shorten the game or you could say lose a few of those moments uh, either one would probably do the game some favors i am I, um, I think it's funny we talk about these these sort of curated moments because actually i think they've got quite a few 
much better. They're clearly capable of of like way more sophisticated scares. Just in general gameplay, it's it's really eerie when you hear a door go. It's really eerie when you glimpse a figure that's oh, sort of clouded over. Even in your night vision, you can't quite see them. You have to zoom in a little bit and they sort of suddenly sort of ghost out of the darkness. Like they have lots of other things on in play. It really is only those curated ones. Lose some of those moments or sh- or shave the running time down. Because I do agree, y- you do see the strings. Or... Speaking of, one thing I nearly forgot to mention and talking about, yeah, prolonged exposure and all that, the NPCs of Mount Massive, the game allows you to look at the mutilated asylum inmates Mm -hmm. for way too long, Mm. like way, way too long. And when this game is made, right, I want to point this out, Red Barrels didn't have as much in the kitty as they do now, of course, so I'm not having a pop at repeat models or anything like that. I don't know. That's just like wondering why an indie band have recorded their EP with a keyboard that has loads of effects rather than bringing a fucking orchestra into the studio. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. saying that, right? <laughs> For me, it's more the peaceful NPCs that won't attack you and they're just dotted about the asylum. You can just walk right up to their faces and have a staring competition with them. and. When you do, you'll see lads with like one eye or their mouth will be sewn shut or their nose will have been ripped off. Oh, Mm. my God. (laughs) But like anything that's meant to make you feel uneasy, if you go and inspect it, it just kills any aura that it previously had. So like if some lad jumps out at me, makes me jump grand, whatever, if I'm then allowed to walk right up to his face and go, Helen, give me a look at you now. Helen, I'll have a look now and I'll study everything about you. Then you just see some, I don't know, some like middle-aged estate agent with this receding hairline. He, he looks after himself. He goes to gym in the evenings. But like, oh, he has teeth sticking out of his cheeks. Mm. <laughs> it's not that Outlast isn't scary. I, I am saying the, the, the opposite, in fact. Like, Outlast is bloody terrifying, but up until the point where it really isn't. A very good magic trick if you didn't linger too long and you just sort of sped your way through it. But as it happens, it's actually six hours and there's plenty of time to see the, see the, the creaks and the gaps. Yes. But that is what we thought of the boom boom. So now let us look at the... The kind of missions, the areas that stood out to each of us. And because I mentioned it earlier, Adam, Carol, why don't you start us off? And yes, tell the myself and Josh and the people at home about that first 20, 25 minutes of the game. So I couldn't really speak there on your point, Colin, because it's kind of the polar opposite for me, because... I think the jump scares in this are fairly well placed to the point where, you know, you start this type of game, you're kind of like, you know, you're walking around, you're waiting for that first one to happen or outlast. I think it's well done. I think there's enough. See, you're always on edge when you're playing it. So a a big blowout of a jump scare is kind of like, oh, Jesus, like that's just, it could have been so much worse in that department, I think. But within the first 20 minutes, when you're walking around and you're outside Mount Massive and you're doing your bits and you you go in and then you initially start the kind of whole 
night vision thing is going on and you're kind of hearing sounds and you're doing this, that and the other and you're taking it fairly handy because you're scared. You get to this, <laughs> this library door and you open it up and yes, this is cheap. This is a straight up cheap jump scare but a body swings down and it it's just so in front of you and for me you you know you're waiting for this you're waiting for this moment but i th- i thought personally that it was just at such a good placement and i was like oh, and honestly my arse fell apart when i saw the body and the music hit i just <laughs> i'd headphones on the volume was up pretty loud. I kind of paused the game and I just, I had a little like, that, that was not pleasant. That was not pleasant. But <laughs> saying that, the game didn't really go and two minutes later, we'll do another one. And then like 10 minutes later, another one. As you mentioned, the part where, and it's a, this is a bit on with the part where the camera, you pick back up the camera, you turn. Excellent. I think the ones that are in place are really well done. I get, you can get more burnt out with the kind of like enemy catch you and you're running. They constantly made me jump. But, do you know, there's a time where like how, whatever you're five, six hours into the game, you're kind of going, ah, oh, geez, that's somebody getting a bit tired of that. No, whatever. But I, I thought that opening, it wasn't even like, it was like, I was walking up to this like massive door and it was a huge hall. But you know, sometimes they'd, they'd make it kind of really obvious that something nasty is going to happen. This was just a standard door that you open. So the unexpected of that was was welcomed, I thought. And uh, the, the opening of the game in general is actually really good. Really, really good. I think myself and Josh have picked similar things, but I don't, maybe for different reasons. Let's find out, dear listener. Josh Wise, what was the... The kind of, yeah, the, the mission, the objective that stood out to you. I picked the bit where you have to restart the generator. So it's fairly early on. It's only a little bit after after Adam's bit, really. It's one of the kind of first things that you have to do in the game. But you have to escape, and to escape, you've got to open the gates, but there's no power, so you need to turn the power back on. This means going down into the basement, which is partially flooded, and turning the generator back on. But to do that, there are two pumps and a main breaker uh, that you got to do. And there's a, a big billy bastard down there with a with a lead pipe lurking about. So you've got to dodge him. And uh, I picked it for a few reasons, actually. Number one, I've never seen a generator ever. And it's brilliant because they're always like, they're just, they pop up in video games and it's brilliant. It's like, you know, Alan Wake where you got to pull the, co- I mean, I've physically seen a generator, but I'm just sort of like, I'm sorry, Mount Massive. It's Denver, Colorado. They have a national grid. What? I just, it is funny that it's like, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a psychiatric hospital, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's steam and water. So head back down there, get, get the pumps going. You know, it, it just makes me laugh. It's classic. Classic video game like bullshit, but I sort of love it. I'm not really having a pop. It's 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 classic shit. Um, so that's one thing. The thing number two, like, it was just a bit where it demonstrated the systems of stealth really cool. There's like a bed that you can hide under. In each room that the pumps are, you press the thing, and then in that room, in one of the rooms, there's a bed, and then in another room, there's a row of lockers. So I think Cullen was sort of saying earlier, it's like yeah, every time you see one of them. 
you just sort of think to yourself, oh shit, this this all I'll I'll need that. And actually, you don't always need it, but in these instances, you do, because every time you push one of the switches, a sort of fella comes to have a poke around because he can hear it, and uh, and you know, it, it it's it's decent. There's some good tension there. Teaches you about those spots. It's like the first sort of moment where you kind of have to use that you also have to use your night vision because you can't see fuck all down there and also you you sort of gotta know where he is at all times so there's a nice tension there sort of it was the first time i used the kind of zoom uh, mechanic to work out where he was um and then uh and then the other reason was that like it also was the moment, sadly, well, kind of sadly, it, it sort of broke it a bit for me. Like, I I failed a couple of times. It's probably my fault. It's not Red Barrels. It's a very nicely done segment. But maybe I was a bit impatient. Or all it takes is for you to fail, like, twice, like, maybe three times or something. And it's just like... Okay, oh, I've had enough of All right, I, I, I get it. I, I understand what you're doing. I, 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 unfortunately, I'm not scared anymore. Um, I just quite like to get this bloody generator back on. So what... It's sort of what you were saying earlier, Callum, about like, oh, there's no... There's no other... Th- like, you have to do the stealth. There's no there's no other thing. And you're it's totally right. Although, But there is another thing kind of and and the other thing is just what i did and you can only really do it when you know what to do but when you know what to do you can just run through this game and i just got annoyed and i was like i'm not doing any of the hiding places i'm sprinting from one pump to the other because he doesn't really have time to get to the first pump room i'm already in the second pump room and then i'm sprinting to the main breaker and then i'm just sprinting out and hopping over the table and going back upstairs and when i realized that it was like oh fuck yeah there actually sort of totally is another viable solution than stealth and it's just running and that's a shame and it's like it's not a shame for red barrels. I'm not having a pop at them. What the hell can they do about that? It's like, yeah, that's a thing in the, uh, but also the downside is, yeah, but you do sort of have to roughly know what you're doing though. Like you can't explore and run. Yes. You have to actually yeah. sort of know like, and so it took a few times of me dying to go, right, there's one pump there, right. There's another pump there. There's the main breaker. And then you do that. So yeah, it kind of encapsulates the sort of the good and the bad. And also I'll just say the mechanic where miles closes doors is, is sort of, it's good. If you, if you hold the button, he will like gently open and close it, like sort of inch it open and closed. And that's, that's a cool thing. But if you tap it, He'll just, well, he won't just close it like a normal person, though. He'll actually fully just slam it loads. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. Like, I don't know what you're doing with that one because I'm not actually caught at the minute. I just wanted to close it in an orderly fashion, but you've belted it shut. And now there's four guys coming after me. So that was that was the other thing. It's really funny. And it's meant it's meant to be oh that's what he does when you're running but of course you're not running a lot of the time so for god's sake if you're listening to this don't ever just know that if you tap x he will harangue that door shut and that's what i'll say so that was my bit that's the good that's the bad that's the ugly there you go well let me tell you about my bit which is a different bit to your bit josh but also quite familiar in many ways Mm. so the bit i have chosen your objective is reach the ground floor of the male ward 
And it is the part with Dr. Traeger, basically, which mm. I, I'll get into. But I've chosen this bit because it runs into the problem that plagues some horror games. And it's what you've just said, Josh. When you die multiple times in an area, scares go out the window. And rather than shrieking in horror, you're just muttering, for fuck's sake, under your breath. <laughs> and this sound effect is burned into your soul every time you die. I'll give you a little warning, dear listener, because it's quite loud and quite shrill. This is what you hear when you die. The first time I properly experienced this was in this section I'm talking about, in the male ward Mm. with Dr. Richard Traeger stalking you. It's after his intro. In order to, I said the the objective was reach the ground floor of the male ward. In order to reach the ground floor of the male ward, you need to get onto a lift, but you need a key for said lift. Now, the issue here for me was that I needed enough time to stay out of his sight so I could slowly push a very large and very heavy thing away from a door that I needed to go through. This large thing was blocking the door. But I died. (laughs) And then I died again. And then I died again. And then I died again. And again. And again. And again. And my God. (laughs) I died multiple times. And I was getting very frustrated because I was being a sneaky boy. Mm. And I was hiding under beds and I was hiding in the dark and I was getting it and he was calling me buddy and he was going, oh, come over here and I'll cut your fingers off or whatever. And I was like, nope, you know, you won't catch me. And I was being super horror Sam Fisher, right? (laughs) But by this point, I don't know, maybe I died four or five times or something, right? I, and it's the exact same thing that you did, Josh. Mm. I learned the route and I was pissed off mm. so I just legged it yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. because I legged it I had enough time to push this large object I think it was like a chest of drawers or something I can't yeah. remember but uh, I had enough time to push that out of the way and then when I went to the next section Traeger magically appeared as I went through <laughs> the door um, it felt like I was trying to create my own pathway to victory and the game didn't like that too much. Mm. And like, I appreciate it's a very personal thing. This, like, for example, there's a section where the canteen is on fire, right? And you need to turn on sprinklers to extinguish the fire. And I got that first go. And I can totally see how you... You know, you could do that and you the same thing could happen to you. What happened to me here? You could get stuck because like there you have to turn two valves and then you have to press a button to turn on the sprinkler. But for me, that area, the challenge was pitched perfectly in terms of tension and just challenge, I guess. It, it all worked. Mm. But it was just that part with Traeger. It just, oh, it like really arced me i could have chosen that bit for exactly the same reasons you did but yeah i I get it totally the game does do that a lot like i said earlier about there was one thing that kind of stopped my live streaming the whole game and what i remember the main thing that kind of turned us off was 
you said the generator bit, Josh. Like there's another one where you must drain the water from a passageway. And in order to do that, you have to do two other things. There's the sprinklers thing I just mentioned, which involves three things that you must do. <laughs> there's another there's another bit where there's a laundry chute and yeah, guess what? You need three fuses for that laundry chute. Like the game does that loads. Video games, classic video games doing things three times. It's like, yes, yeah. I get it. Yeah. But yeah, that is the, uh, that is what we thought of the boom, boom of Outlast, as well as the, I guess the, the objectives, the missions and the areas that stood out to the three of us. So we're going to take a quick break and then we will be back to talk about the story of Outlast as well as anything else we have to add in our little miscellaneous section. So we'll be back right after this. All right, then let us chat about the story, the narrative of 2013's Outlast. Uh, Josh Wise, why don't you start us off? I've obviously given a recap of the story earlier on. And down here in our document, you have written, do my eyes deceive me, three times in one sentence, you have written the word nonsense. Mm. How, how dare yeah. you explain yourself? <laughs> well, I put down two things, and they're kind of linked, but I'll 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 look at them separately. Like, so it's silliness. It's well, it's sort of rooted in some stuff that did happen, but not very deeply rooted, and it quickly deviates from that with some seriously nutty shit. But um, you know, it's. It's Nazis from the from the war and and experimenting with dreams and drugs and you know and all sorts of other stuff besides and I don't and Miles is a non-entity and the villains aren't particularly compelling but 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 it's fine it it, it does what it needs to do to make you scared of a body dangling from the ceiling you know it's 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 fine what I will say is that whilst I didn't really care too much, but early on I was sort of reading the notes and stuff and going, oh, they're doing some stuff about MK Ultra, Operation Paperclip. Yeah, okay, all right, fair enough. But actually, like, the cleverest thing I think the game does is just, like, not in explicitly telling its story, but in doing it mechanically. Like, it, it if you think about, like the central thing that you do in this game it's use the night vision to see things in the dark and as we've kind of said it's like yeah but often the things you see are really fucking horrible so you don't want to see them and that is really clever like that's your central mechanic but narratively you're a journalist who is trying to make people see things and often they are things that people <laughs> don't really want to see. And that's like really beautifully done. And it's a really rare thing in games when a mechanic truly matches thematically or narratively what they're trying to do. It, it must be amazingly difficult to, to do at all. I can think of Sekiro does it very, very nicely, but and Metal Gear Solid 3 does it very nicely, but very few games do. And this is one that did it. The actual plot of what's happening is just... Oh right, okay, uh, oh, fine, and th you know they mm. then they pile thing after thing after, th and I just think, oh, 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 
all right. Yeah, you know, I'm not reading them anymore. I'm just, I'm, I'm just going through. It's fine. Judging off of what you've put down here, Adam Carroll, I presume you're of a, a similar mentality. Very much so. I was very much into the the the, the asylum. It's like it, you know, it's it may not be everyone's kind of theme, but it definitely scares me massively. And uh, <laughs> you know, the, the 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 people walk around. Tension was high. Once then, you know, religion and then the lab and everything turns into like fucking Resident <laughs> Evil or something downstairs, you know, just a bit. And I'm just a bit like, whatever. Like, don't get me wrong, the story goes mental. But when I see a lab, I just know what it is. <laughs> I just know everything is going to happen. And I'm just like, oh, I'm just not into it. I'm just not into it. At all at, uh, on that third act. And to be honest, scare factor goes way out the window. Oh, God, yeah. For the last at least hour of that game, all fear is gone. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, if not more. But yeah, totally. I think yeah. we are dancing around it. We will get to it in just a moment. But I wanted to very quickly say that when Richard Traeger isn't on screen, all of the other characters should be asking, where is Richard Traeger? <laughs> Like he, you know, if you haven't figured out by now, dear listener, I bloody love a charismatic, unhinged villain. Just wait until we do Far Cry 3 in 14 years or something. Yeah. Then you'll get it. But like, I honestly don't have a lot to say about the good doctor other than I enjoyed him more than like Chris Walker and the wall rider, which we're alluding to Father Martin. Although like, Father Martin has some upside, but yeah, like Traeger's probably the, I mean, he's probably the least involved of all the named villains that (laughs) pursue you. Maybe the twins? The twins, yeah. Who are literally two naked, softly spoken lads. Didn't work for me, that. Didn't didn't work for me. But anyway, Traeger is, like, he's introduced to someone that captures you. He ties you up in a chair and then he cuts off two of your fingers for the laugh, whatever. And he also looks a bit like an older version of what the Robbie Williams character at the end of the Rock DJ video would look like now. That's a, 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 st- a stunning observation, but that's sort of spot on, actually. <laughs> <laughs> But like, then you do the bit that annoyed me that I spoke about a while ago and then Traeger just dies. He gets crushed in a lift. Like, that is the story of Richard Traeger. Short, sweet, enjoyable. But I just wanted to very quickly play a bit of dialogue delivered by the Canadian actor and theatre director Alex uh, Ivanovici who played Richard Traeger. And this is Traeger just after you've met him and he's talking about your, you being Miles Upshur, the protagonist, uh, your relationship to Father Martin. So take a listen to this. Hey, you're that bullshit priest's guy, aren't you? <laughs> His witness or whatever, you must be exhausted. Well, let's take a break, huh, buddy? You old two martini lunch? Hmm? Have a little confab, blah, blah. It's just a kind of, I I enjoy his cadence, his weird delivery. It is off, isn't it? In a good way. Yeah, it it, it works. Whereas, I don't know, I find the rest of them are just like, Uh, but yeah, yeah, that was what yeah. I wanted to very briefly say about Richard Traeger. Yeah. But the main thing I wanted to talk about, uh, or one of the main things, I suppose, is I don't know how many people know 
Perhaps it's well-trodden ground for fans of Outlast. I don't know. But the events of Outlast were inspired by real events. You made reference to it earlier, Josh. Mm. In the 1950s, there was this initiative called MKUltra. The game references it in some notes that you can find, but it doesn't make a huge deal out of it or anything like that. No. So... For anyone that doesn't know, MKUltra was this experiment that uh, the CIA ran where uh, they were doing tests on people in order to find out ways that they could implement mind control during interrogations. It was done in part because America suspected that some US soldiers had been brainwashed during the Korean War. Uh, And partly, I believe, from what I was looking up, uh, because America was looking for an advantage during the Cold War, basically. Mm. So they would feed their test subjects LSD. They would put them through shock treatment. They would put them through verbal and sexual abuse. The CIA would do nasty, nasty stuff, uh, all in an effort to learn what forms of torture would benefit them during a real investigation. And like... All those test subjects, not willing participants, like the CIA experimented on patients in psychiatric hospitals like Outlast. They experimented on those locked up in prisons, mm. all without their consent. Like, you know, pretty fucked up. I, mm. before recording this podcast, saw a video on the BBC where a historian was speaking about it and how men would meet up with sex workers and then they went wherever they were going to have sex and they'd be dosed with LSD. Uh, but not not adults, as, uh, or not just adults, I should say as well. Apparently, in other avenues, they'd find teenagers, they'd test them. And there was, I don't know how well this is known, I wasn't aware of it, but there was a psychiatric hospital in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, where Red Barrels is set up, called the Allen Memorial Institute. And they ran MKUltra experiments from 1957 to 64. And some of the stuff, I mean, some of the stuff is horrendous. Like, I couldn't cover all of it. I just, just, there's just do absolutely loads. Like, mm. in popular culture, I suppose the closest thing might be Stranger Things. Yeah. And what, like, the character of Eleven is subjected to. Yeah. But, like, the MK Ultra program was still going on until 1973, right? In my uh, uh, research, looking all this stuff, this isn't all off the top, mate. I'm going off bullet points here, <laughs> obviously. Like, you know, it's equal parts maddening, saddening, fascinating. It's, it's, it's wild, right? And mm. the fact that it was running up until pretty recently. And like in the fiction of Outlast, your big bad company, the Murkov Corporation, are picking things up from where the CIA left them. And yes, I presume given that Red Barrels are based in Montreal, that the story of what went on in the Allen Memorial Institute is something that your core team is very well aware of. And, you know, what astounding source material to pull from. Mm. I mean, if it's not obvious where I'm going with this, like they fumbled it. Mm. And like, I I mean, I, I guess they wanted to push the mutilated patients and really going for all that. But it does seem a strange decision to make the affected be a threat Mm. when like, the scientists and doctors are such an easy, like it's an open goal in terms of a group of enemies. Mm. Traeger actually is an example of what they could have done more of. He is a former employee of Markov rather than a patient at Mount Massive. Mm. I'm fairly sure that's right. But perhaps Red Barrels would say that the majority of patients in the game pose no threat. And that is fair. But even if you overlook that, 
the question, like, what would these mind control experiments, what would they look like in 2013? You know, a, a twisted question, maybe some would say, but like no less a captivating one. And mm. I suppose they may argue uh, that you see an answer to that question, but I just don't like it. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it, it, it hits the note. And like the story, it's worth pointing out, was written by J.T. Petty, a man that we have spoken about previously on this podcast. He also wrote the story for uh, Splinter Cell, which we covered only three episodes ago, and I had my issues with that as well. Like, this one is just, I don't know, I, I guess I've said similar about other aspects. It's just a bit silly, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Like, the big bad of the wall rider is just, What? Like I I, yeah. I I called him a, a ghost terminator thing multiple <laughs> times, but you've mentioned in our doc here that you wanted to talk about it, Josh. So mm. just, you know, tell the listeners where this game actually ends up. Uh, Adam mentioned, made reference to it in a kind of a lab, but I don't know. In, in fairness, I have been referring to it as a ghost. It's not a ghost. It's actually a bit weirder than a ghost, I suppose, if that's possible. So yeah, what is the war rider? What's going on? Well, you kind of nailed it with Ghost Terminator, really, which is bonkers. But you sort of did. Um, so, and my pr- trouble with it is, I think you're right. It's like you've already got this really interesting thing, and actually, if you'd have done less bonkers stuff and just sort of focused on the really interesting thing and not overloaded this game, um, I, I think it would have been a lot more effective. So there's there's your there's your sort of your background of the of the MK Ultra stuff and the sort of echoes of that that's going on. Uh, there's also then the the layering of the kind of religious iconography with the Father who Father Martin and all all the sort of the, the crosses and all that sort of stuff to sort of get that imagery in there because it was sort of for spooking people's sake, I guess. And then you got this other layer uh, where it's like, yeah, the malevolent force, <clears throat> the Wall Rider. Is right. I will get this out. Bear with me. Is the the dream is is the is the collected force of the dreams, the sort of subconscious runoff of this fella, young fella called Billy, who's in a coma or possibly dead. I think in some sort of vegetative. So he's dreaming. I think he's out of the bloody picture anyway, and. What is happening is this force is Billy's dream sort of energy uh, and sort of acting out Billy's whims, be they subconscious or otherwise. Uh, But actually what it consists of is, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a cloud of kind of of nano machine of nanobots of little tiny yeah. robots that all come together and form a humanoid figure and uh, are a sort of psychokinetic force absolutely out of this world i mean the story the story <laughs> goes mount massive by the end of the game and i just wasn't really ready pick one do you, yeah. do you want to do the religious iconography? Fine. Do you want to do the MK Ultra stuff? Fine. Battery dial it back quite a lot. D- don't bring in the nano machines. That's it. It doesn't work. It, 
apart from anything else, it's it's a different flavour, you know? I hate it when places do that. It's like a large part of the reason why that fucking fourth Indiana Jones film is so much maligned. It's like everyone knows Indiana Jones, it's curses, it's ancient idols, it's biblical powers. When you just bring aliens and the Roswell crash into it, you know, a lot of people was still like, oh, well, what's your problem? And that's super supernatural as well. And it's like, yeah, no, it is, it is. But supernaturality has flavours, you know, UFOs are sci-fi, biblical stuff is biblical. When you mingle them all together, like, I, I, I can't explain it. I know it sounds bonkers, like, oh, this thing over here is fine, but that thing over there is a bit weird. It's like, yeah, I know it's all nonsense, but don't mix up all the flavours. It just gets crazy. Yeah. I, I, don't need, I don't need the nanobots. Uh, yeah, and, and, one, and one thing I'll just say on the story, because I'll get it. It's a very small thing. And JT Petty, it's a person that I, I praised for his work on Splinter Cell, I thought it was excellent. But um, one of the characters during i think the bit that the, the level that you did, the level that you uh talked about color more the, the the little part that you talked about where you were running just before you first see traeger when you're getting chased and uh one of the bits of incidental dialogue a fella just shouts after you and says there's more than one way to fuck a cat and what? Th- that, and like that's just a bit of dialogue and i just erupted into laughter and it completely <laughs> took me out of the game and i just was like what like what hat hat are there what, 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 what like in its ear like what are you thinking like i don't, I don't know what you mean help me out here but so yeah i will say that the writing on many levels collapses like a souffle but yeah there, there you go that's that's where i am with it. um i mean one of my issues is how it's optional or well the the majority of us is optional. Mm. And I'll explain why mm-hmm. I, I fucking found it an issue. Like, if you want to just have this scary experience where you're some lad in an, as- in an asylum, occasionally being chased by people that will show things, uh, <laughs> some things that you're like, what? And, you know, they'll kill you in a couple of hits. You know, uh, fill your boots. It's, it's here for you. You'll pick up the occasional thing here or there about the story. Like, you'll get... The majority of Father Martin and the religious cult stuff, I suppose. A lot mm. of that is delivered via in-game dialogue. But you'll also get the nanobot weirdness mm. at the end as well. But most of Outlast's story and the story of Dr. Veronica and the experiments that took place in Mount Massive Asylum and the story of the patients at Mount Massive, it takes place in documents that you pick up in the world. Mm. There is a five or six part comic book series as well called the Markov account. Oh, right. But I believe that more bridges the gap between the first and the second games, I think. You do have, we made reference to, uh, to it earlier, like you do have the DLC, which is called Whistleblower. I didn't play it. No, nor, nor me. I wondered if you guys might, because it tells a story of the fellow who gets in touch with Miles, doesn't it? Yes. He ends up sending the email that sort of triggered. No, I did no. not. There is some stuff in there that I can clarify because I haven't played it. But there are some things in there that seem a bit... Uh, I don't know but uh, again I I don't know because I I didn't play it so I probably shouldn't dwell on that but anyway back to the base game I wanted to engage with the story of Outlast Mm. and some people might go why? (laughs) Well I do a fortnightly podcast about video games where I like to do deep dives on all aspects of the games Mm. I really enjoy 
looking at a video game story and finding metaphor and finding allegory where it potentially doesn't even exist mm-hmm. because I find it fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. Show me a game about a giraffe and a hippo going to a bakery for some chocolate eclairs and I'll tell you how it's connected to the Falklands War. Yeah. Like, I will. I, I'll, I'll find a way. Because it's good crack. Like, my, my main problem with Outlast Story is that I feel like it doesn't, it almost doesn't want me to go in depth on its story. Like, as I mentioned, it's mostly delivered through documents and even though I feel like I picked up a decent chunk of these I still definitely miss some mm. and it felt like I was really missing something by not picking up every one of them like you know I, I would mi- I would maybe miss two or three and then I'd pick up another one and I'd be like uh, why am I missing something here another way the story is told is by what you record so you hold the camera up you record something that's happening in front of you and then the journalist, protagonist Miles Upshur, will jot something down like, oh my God, there's blood everywhere or whatever. <laughs> but I, nine times out of ten, completely forgot to record what was happening in front of me. <laughs> like, and I admit that's a me problem. That isn't a Red Barrels problem. The game even tells you at the start, record stuff because then the, your man is going to jot stuff down. I just, I pulled my camera out to use night vision. It's mm. the only time really. So I, <laughs> I missed a lot of that. But in the big scheme of things, it's not like the story is overly complex. I ran through it earlier, but the game's reluctance to allow me to actually get involved mm. made it feel like it just didn't matter. So I just stopped caring and just treated it like your standard horror nonsense bullshit. Yeah. It's like what you said, Josh. It was like, oh, I'm I'm reading the documents. I'm reading what, and after a point, you're like, oh, fucking whatever. And like you said as well, which I th- which I think is a really good point is 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 looking at the end when you you were sort of talking about the enemies in the game. You're, you're looking at the people you're coming up against, and you and you're thinking like on a thematic level, like. Uh, it's kind of a f- I understand why they did it but like to make the patients the the the, the bad guys is like uh a decision that has some consequences, right? It's such a weird <laughs> to say. Why would you like? But one of the problem, maybe the maybe the biggest problem of that, which I think kind of ties into what the the, the, the story trouble is. Well, if the people who are getting hurt by this thing. I, I, if I can't empathise with them and I don't want to help or save them uh, because they're trying to kill me with lead pipes, then I don't really have a great way into the characters. And so the characters are just fall flat. I don't care about Miles. I don't really care about Traeger. Traeger's fine. I, I take your point. It's, it's a good vocal performance. But I think characters is like a big part of it. It's like we don't really have a way into anything. That's It's all plot. With no real story. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, So that is what we thought of the story of Outlast. And this is the last bit of our review where we just, our miscellaneous section, where we add anything that kind of doesn't fit in elsewhere or something maybe we forgot to mention elsewhere. Adam Carroll, I'm sure you're going to give us 45 minutes on the name of the asylum. Tell me why (laughs) Mount Massive isn't the best name you've ever heard. Well, look, here's the thing, right? You got Mount Massive, you got Miles <laughs> Upshur, you got the Wall Raider. Come on. Really? Is that all you got? Is that all you can actually come up with? That's tireless. It's a big mount. It's a big mount, yeah. What if it was Mount, if it was mount Spooky? Would that have been better? <laughs> 
They may as well. They may as well, Josh. Mount Massive is dog shit. It sounds like it sounds like a kind of a fun ride at Disneyland or something. Yeah, you know, it does actually. Yeah. Hands in at all times on Mount Massive, kids. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One very quick thing I wanted to mention is it's just a bit much. Do you know, like the the blood, the gore, the body parts strewn about the place. Like you'll you you in the game more than once. I think you literally come across a foot in a toilet, and like I I mean I I don't know. It it just it's just more to put in the not very scary column. When the fella cuts your fingers off, I did uh, uh, that. Was actually horrible. That was good. It was being done to me, but like yeah. a lot of the other body horror stuff, it just felt like cool and edgy and oh yeah, like in a different way mm-hmm. to dark to dark, all caps dark, <laughs> but kind of in the same vein. Like dark would be how you would feel. If you were like an, you know, you listen to emo, you're 14 years of age, mm. you write poetry. Mm-hmm. Outlast is what you graduate to then when you're like 19 and you like craft beers and you think Alistair Crowley is cool. <laughs> it just feels a bit much. And I, I mean, as far as memory serves, I think the sequel is even more. But, oh, shit. You know, a story for another time, most definitely. Um, that's what we thought of Outlast. So we are going to take a quick break and then we will be back to give you our final, final verdict on the game. So we'll be back right after this lovely musical interlude. All right, then, let us give our lovely listeners, our final verdict on Outlast. I said that in a weird way, didn't I? But before we do that, (laughs) let us give the listeners some of the reviews of the critics at the time the game originally came out. So, and I'm going to get you two lovely gentlemen to read out these quotes for me. So this first review is from Edge. It was published in Edge. Edge doesn't have bylines, so I don't know who the critic was. But they gave it 9 out of 10. And they said, quote, It always feels like you're in the hands of a developer at the top of its game, reveling in making the player uncomfortable, but never forgetting to delight at the same time. Outlast combination of stealth, platforming and horror is exceptional. The benefits of the diverse experience of its highly talented development team always in plain sight. Griffin McElroy of Polygon gave it 7.5 out of 10 and he said, quote, Yes, Outlast's blind corners and pitch black sewers possess an illusion of danger greater than the actual threat posed by the monsters they hide. But really, illusions of danger are all video games are capable of conjuring and Outlast conjures them up relentlessly. Giancarlo Saldana of Games Radar gave Outlast 4 out of 5, and they said, quote, It's lacklustre ending aside, Outlast is one title that will make you think about what makes a game so scary. It's not so much that it tries to scare you with monsters, blood or gore that makes the experience so powerful as it as it is how the game mentally plays your senses and emotions. Ben Barrett of Rock Paper Shotgun, no score obviously for Rock Paper Shotgun, and they said, quote, It's not a simple exercise for gore and violence, nor is it only interested in shocking you with a sudden scream and blood-splattered visage. It wants to horrify, 
It'll also intrigue, terrify, and surprise you in equal measure. And finally, Rich McCormick of Eurogamer gave it 7 out of 10. And they said, quote, Stop and peer too long to outlast gloom and you'll see the zips on the monster's costumes. Take it at speed and you'll find a haunted house worth visiting. But that is what all of the critics at the time in September 2013 thought of Outlast. And none of those opinions matter. Not on this podcast anyway. The only opinions that matter are Adam's, Josh's and mine as we bestow badges of approval or disapproval on Outlast. So how this works is that each of us will give Outlast a rating. And that rating is either a pass, a play, or an espionage explosion. A sort of a summary of our thoughts. A pass, we don't think you should play this game. A play, we think you should play this game. Or an espionage explosion, we really think you should play this game. One, two, three. All rationale for ratings is entirely up to whomever is bestowing the badge of approval slash disapproval. And we change the order of a badge of stores on each episode. And that means that this week, the order is as follows. It is going Josh, Cullum, Adam. So, let's give our final ratings of Outlast. Josh Wise, take it away. I am going to give it a play. And, uh, and I would say that it does some interesting stuff with its stealth. So if you're a stealth fan, I'd say check it out for the uh, camcorder night vision mechanic. Um, I... It... It, yeah, it, it doesn't get top marks from me for like a few reasons. I think I agree. I agree with the assessment of, of oh, I don't know. I agree with the diagnosis, but it could have multiple prescriptions. You could either shorten the game or you could take some of its more prescribed like jump scares out of it. Either way, there's there's a, there's too much real estate here so that you see the strings you see the sort of you see behind the curtain a bit too much and it loses some of those scares i think and i and it led to frustration for me and i did sort of just run through bits and also the story uh is the central mechanic is is clever and i think thematically that idea of uncovering stuff that's hidden and maybe n- maybe not wanting to see what you uncover like that's clever but in terms of the actual narrative and plot um, not so much. I don't really care about any of the characters. So yeah, it's right in the middle for me. You should you should play it. If you like horror games, definitely play it. And if you like stealth, I think that camcorder thing is sneaky and clever. I, Colin Hearn, am speaking now, and <laughs> I agree with a lot of what you said. Like I do go back to. The camera, like the camera is, or might have even been you, Adam, who said like, it isn't just a gimmick. Like Mm. it is the, it is the central gimmick in a sense. Like, you know, it is the hook, I suppose, of Outlast because the word gimmick has negative connotations, I suppose. But like, it it is that, it, it is the hook. It is the, oh, that's the thing that Outlast does. And it does it so well. Like it really, I think the night vision camcorder 10 years on from its release date, it still feels good. It still feels like it creates so much tension. And yeah, I think from a a stealth point of view, when you are kind of obeying the rules of the game in a sense, and you're trying to hide from the the baddies, go jumping in lockers, hiding under beds. The problem then is things like I mentioned, when I got frustrated in that area, I was like, oh, look, whatever. And I legged it. 
And that was the key to success. And I'm not saying that's the key to success all the time. Like you mentioned, Josh, earlier, like you do need to die a couple of times to then do that because that's when you will know the route, I suppose. But there, yeah, and like, you know, I I spoke about like how, how, how poor the story is and how much I kind of didn't care and how like, and this is where, you know, it's good. Different opinions are good. Like Adam, you loved all the jump scares. I didn't because for me there were too many. Outlast is a funny one. It does sit teetering between two ratings for me. And it's like, you know, it's, oh God, it's like right there. But ultimately for me, it is a pass. Adam Carl, what is your rating and summary of your thoughts on Outlast? Um, Also an interesting one because like, do you know, it's only been three years since I first ever played this game. So... Returning to it, I I can't say my can't say I was like oh yeah I can't wait to go back and play Outlast again. But I feel what this game does quite well is how it heightens my curiosity as I progress throughout it. And I think like given the fact you have literally nothing else to do but shoot with a video camera. And for some reason, that kind of seems to not bog it down. That to me is like a pretty big achievement for the game that it is. And like, yeah, its setting is probably part of that. The night vision thing is is part of it. Like, but I I also like that it, the game also doesn't decide to go ahead and bog you down with really obnoxious puzzles and tons of backtracking. I really appreciate that. We, we will, I know no word on about the first outlast, but there is moments even in Outlast 2 that when you're being chased, the navigation kind of side of it all is is just head-wrecking. It, one is well-balanced in that sense as well. The story, look, I'm with you as well, Colm, like, I think it's, it, it's bum-bum, but I think Outlast is is a decent one for people who maybe think like, you know, playing the PG demo is too intense or Amnesia is too intense. And like, there are certain games of this quality that are a bit too extreme and just like, oh, I can't, it's too scary. Outlast is a nice balance. It offers enough scare, but then you kind of get over it eventually. Yes, it could be slightly shorter, but I didn't feel like it was overly long either. Um, which is why I'd be saying it's it's a play for me. Very good. So that is what we thought of Outlast. But forget all of that. Outlast is done. Traeger, Chris Walker, the twins. How to fuck a cat. <laughs> <laughs> all of our favourite characters from Outlast. Yeah. Forget about every single one of them because we need to focus on what we're going to be talking about on the next episode of Stealth Boom Boom because on the next episode of Stealth Boom Boom we're going to be looking at a game that Sal Accardo of GameSpy called quote an impressive combination of stellar graphics open-ended gameplay and effective AI. Edge called it quote a uniquely beguiling game and frequently beautiful in every sense. And Jason Ocampo at GameSpot called it, quote, quite possibly the best single-player first-person shooter experience for the PC since Half-Life. We are going back nine years to 2004 for our first look at a series that 
definitely has stealth and definitely has some boom boom. On the next episode of Stealth Boom Boom, we're going to be discussing, reviewing, dissecting Far Cry. A peaceful island paradise is about to become a brutal death trap. Jack Carver thought he'd left his military past behind. But when he's hired by a beautiful photojournalist to provide transport to a remote island, they'll be confronted with a deadly threat in the most unlikely of places. Now, Jack must uncover the secrets within a forbidden fortress and the powers of a radically equipped commando unit whose one mission is to stop him. Within a tropical oasis, he must withstand an onslaught of battle-hardened mercenaries by exploring a vast and unique landscape, using the terrain as his cover, an arsenal of deadly weapons, and every kind of transport you can imagine. Caught between the lush islands and the living hell, Jack is about to embark upon a mission like none you've ever seen. From Ubisoft Entertainment comes a paradise-turned-combat zone. And a battlefield that's a far cry from anything you've ever seen before. The original Far Cry, a game that I have never played. Is it something that either of you have played? Josh Wise, do you have a history with Far Cry? Yeah, I have. I have a real lovely. Uh, my, I, we didn't have like a good PC growing up, but my friend, uh, my very very old childhood friend, he had like a decent PC, and I remember going around to his house on like a Friday night, we'd have a little sleepover and like sort of take it turns, die by die, trying to play Far Cry 1. And it was just, it was the bee's knees. Adam Carroll, do you have any history with the original Far Cry? No, never played it. Um, It was, 2 was my first ever Far Cry. Excellent. Uh, And I should stress, we are playing Far Cry. We are not playing... Far Cry Instincts, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it was Far Cry Instincts and then uh, Far Cry Instincts Predator. It was like the OG Xbox and then the 360 version. Yeah. Yes, because Far Cry Instincts was like the first Far Cry on consoles on the Xbox, but it was like quite different. Totally different uh, game. In, yeah, totally different. Yeah, yeah, in ways that we may discuss on the next episode of Stealth Boom Boom. So... That just about does it for this episode. Thank you very much, dear listener, for listening. Of course, if you enjoyed this podcast, you just happened upon it somehow, and you want more, then all you have to do is subscribe to our lovely little podcast via your podcatching app of choice, be it Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, so on and so forth. If you just search for Stealth Boom Boom on there, you will find us. And also, please do rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. It does very much help. So yes, do that. Thank you. Five stars. Yeah! Uh, You can also follow Stealth Boom Boom on your social network of choice. Just search for Stealth Boom Boom 
you can also follow all of us as well. I am at Cullum underscore O'Hearn. Adam is at Adam Zokes. And Josh is at Joshy Wise. But now it's time for my least favourite part of the show. Because this is the part of the show where we must bid the listener adieu. So say goodbye, Josh Wise. Goodbye. Say goodbye, Adam Carroll. Goodbye. And say goodbye, Colm O'Hearn. Sloan. Go forward.